Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Uh, let's meet the panel. Minnie Rahman is a migrant rights campaigner currently on a well-earned break. Hello, Minnie. How are you? Hi, Dorian. I'm good, thank you. Last week, the US Supreme Court struck down the nationwide right to abortion in the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. We were both at Glastonbury, um, where numerous artists spoke out about it on stage. Uh, can America function with a Supreme Court that goes against public opinion on issue after issue? It's not it's not just this one in the latest batch of rulings. Um, for decades to come, when three of them were appointed by a man who, as we will get to, um, tried to do a coup. Mm. I mean, first of all, I will just say for listeners, I've lost my voice because of Glastonbury, but hopefully we'll get through this together. <laughs> um, I think the more important thing to think about here, I think, is the effect that this will have on voting patterns across America, because... Obviously, it's really devastating and it's horrendous, but ultimately this decision means that individual states have a bit more power and responsibility to to introduce legislation that protects women's rights. So what I think it's difficult to understand what the outcome will be if the Supreme Court keeps going this in this direction, but ultimately you would hope that this pushes for a more accountable election cycle, which sees more people elected who actually care about these issues and vote for them properly. Well, there was a snap poll um, that showed that it was far more galvanising for Democrats than for Republicans. You know, that is the, the weird thing in politics sometimes, that when you've when you've scored a victory for your side, your voters are less animated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that does, that does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> if you feel like you've won, you're less likely to feel passionate and to feel like you have something to fight for. So let's hope that this pushes everyone who feels like they've got something to fight for out there. Political commentator Alex Andreu is here. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Also in America, lots of America this week. More revelations to the January 6th hearings. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony has been described as the most damning about a sitting president since John Dean's during the Watergate hearings. What did she say? So basically what we're finding out is that in the twilight of Trump's tenure, after Biden had won the election but before he was inaugurated, what had already been, let's face it, a fairly tenuous grip on the racket of reality uh, just completely fell apart and he was having tantrums, breaking stuff, including on the day of the Capitol invasion, trying to wrest the steering wheel from the driver of his car and having a physical fight with one of his special um, security detail because they wouldn't take him to the capital to be with his people. And he was saying, well, they're not going to hurt me. <laughs> exactly. They're my people. I want to be with my people. And, and all of this stuff is coming out because there's a lot of people who worked in the White House at the time who are now giving evidence. And you're finding out quite the the extent of the meltdown that was going on in the background. My favorite, favorite bit 
is that when he was having a proper tantrum, they would call in an aide who was known as the music man who would play soothing show tunes for Donald, including his favorite memory from Cats, and that would calm him down. <laughs> wow. That guy had the nuclear codes, and he would like them again. Do you think, because we're very used to saying, well, nothing will put Republicans off Trump, um, but there is a suggestion here that there will be enough people sort of doing the Homer walks backwards through the hedge move <laughs> to take the air out of his, his sort of aspirations. Maybe. I mean, let, let's hope so. And let, or also, let's hope that if his, if his grip is so tenuous, let's hope that all this stuff coming out causes him to have a, a more public meltdown. Um, and back home briefly, the Metropolitan Police has been placed under special measures by uh, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary for a long list of scandals and failures. What does this mean in practice? Um, so it means exactly what it means for a school or a hospital, believe it or not. It's exactly the same mechanism. So if you, if you fail all of your performance indicators and fail them badly, the regulator of the relevant area, in this case the, the police regulator, basically comes in and goes into what they call engage mode. They get quite hands-on and check on you on a almost day-to-day -day basis, make suggestions, structural improvements you could make and all of that. So they, the regulator basically takes a much more hands-on role. And how long is this meant to last? It lasts basically until the regulator is happy that you're um, n not dis dysfunctional anymore. And can they think of an easier name than Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary? <laughs> <laughs> Which I, is, a, is a tongue twister. Mick. <laughs> Our guest this week is a former director of policy at 10 Downing Street under Tony Blair, co-founder of the think tank Demos, and now a professor of collective intelligence, public policy and social innovation at University College London. His new book is called Another World is Possible, How to Reignite Social and Political Imagination. Jeff Mulgan, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon is pushing hard for another referendum on Scottish independence. October 2023 is her ideal date. But polls show that just 28% support a referendum in that time frame. And at best, yes is level, pegging with no in some polls, no is ahead. And if we're talking about priorities, just 16% of Scots think that this is a priority versus, you know, health, education, cost of living. Why is she doing this now? <laughs> Well, she, she is the leader of a party for whom it is you know, an existential issue to be in favour of independence and to keep that on the agenda. I was in Glasgow the time of the night of the last referendum where most people I knew wanted, ref, wanted independence and were incredibly deflated the morning after. But 10 years before that, I placed a public bet that there would never be a successful secession in a mature democracy. And at that time, everyone expected Catalonia, Scotland, Quebec, all sorts of places to become independent. That seemed to be the tide of history. And my argument then, which I didn't actually quite expect to be true, but I think has turned out to be true, was that whenever there appears to be a, a road to a secession, enough compromises will be made by the parent country just enough to keep them in the system. And I think that's what's going to happen to Scotland. I don't think she will. She probably won't have a referendum. If she did, she probably wouldn't win it. But it's quite useful for her to constantly keep that on the agenda to fire up her troops just as her equivalents in Catalonia 
Catalonia, Quebec, all those other parts of the world do. So it's a very paradoxical situation, constant threat of secession, but probably it will never actually happen. What do you think of the idea that there's more kind of demand for it when the Tories are in power in Westminster and that actually if if we have a Labour government or a Labour-led coalition next time, that like it's really going to kind of fizzle? That certainly used to be true. Uh, and, you know, it's a very long time since there's been a Tory majority in Scotland. There, there was once, was know, there? just in living memory in the 50s, they definitely got most right. of the votes. Uh, and of course, the referendum result, the Brexit referendum result, again, sort of reinforced the difference of Scottish political culture. I'm a great admirer of her. I think she's a really good leader. They govern in a way which is much more mature than what we've become used to Mm. in London from the UK government. It's much more like a normal, sensible, grown-up, small European country. And I just (laughs) wish we actually would learn a little bit. One of the weird things about the UK now is no one in London ever learns anything from (laughs) Edinburgh and Cardiff. It's as if it's another world. And actually a little bit of humility and saying, actually, what what bits of Nicola Sturgeon might... (laughs) quite good in number 10, would probably help us all. This week on the show, we will rake through the ashes of last week's by-elections and talk to Jeff about the dearth of big ideas in British politics and how a political imagination might be revived. Plus, in the extra bit, Vienna has been identified as the world's most livable city. What makes a city livable and which ones do we love and maybe hate? So first, Alex, last Thursday, uh, the Tories lost two by-elections in different parts of the country to two different parties. They certainly did. It was, uh, it was good. It was a good time. <laughs> was this the day that, that Johnson's winning coalition uh, officially broke? Either that or the day the opposition's coalition came together. You could argue both. And both are probably true in that if you look at the sort of 2019 results and even the 2017 results, if you added the progressive vote together, they still didn't um, overwhelm the the Tory vote, certainly in Tiverton. That meant that Johnson both had to turn off his voters and that progressive voters had to be smart about the way they voted. And both those things happened. I think the combination of those two things will be very, very worrying to the Conservative Party. Well, there's a huge amount of anti-Tory tactical voting Mm. without an official pact. I mean, it's hard to imagine, if you look at those results, that an official pact, you know, would have produced a a better result. I mean, is that the crucial factor that could demolish the Tory majority, bearing in mind that by-election behaviour is different to general election behaviour? Well, but that's crucial because a a sort of unofficial pact wouldn't work as well in a a general election because there are less resources concentrated on the the constituencies involved and less news about them. You know, people just know less about what's going on in their area. I mean, my feelings on a... On a progressive alliance, are well known to listeners. I don't. I don't speak from a, a position of objectivity here. But um, what I, I would like to defer instead, I think, to the hysterical headlines of the Mail and the Telegraph, and the many tweets from Tory MPs describing this like a grubby backroom deal. Um, a long Mail editorial by Andrew Neil, which concludes. And I quote, the petty tribalisms of the British left usually stop such tactical voting having much of an influence. But Labour, Lib Dems and Greens now make up about 60% of the English electorate. If they were to come to some sort of working arrangement before the next election, it would be curtains for the Tories. So never mind what I think, looking at what they fear Mm. is very, very telling. 
Was Andrew Neil for or against this, or just kind of observing? Andrew Neil was having a general moan, as he tends to do, about the state of the Tory party. But this analysis has been in all the supportive uh, papers. Uh, They all absolutely dread the idea that the actual majority in the country, because that's what it comes down to, might find a fucking way to get its will. (laughs) They are petrified of this. The the will of the people. Um, Minnie, in Wakefield, a poll of soft voters found the top two reasons for not voting Tory were were Partygate and Boris Johnson is not in touch with working class people. Um, cost of living and taxes were three and four. The fact that the last Tory MP was a sex offender came in at number 10. Um, <laughs> we know how hard it is for Labour to win a majority, particularly since the, from the position of 2019. But in this state, I mean, can you see a Johnson-led party winning a majority in the next election? I would really like to say no, but I just don't think it's as simple as that. You know, I think a lot of this depends on when the next election is and how long there is of Johnson's leadership left and also what state Labour is in by the time there is a next election. You know, it's not just about how voters see Johnson, it's also about how they perceive Labour's alternative vision. I think if there is a a long time of Johnson's leadership left and then there's a general election, I think what we might see happening is people caring less about Partygate and a lot more about the cost of the living crisis because that's only going to increase. And I think that is the point at which Labour really needs to have a strong opposition, a strong line, a strong alternative approach. And that could be the thing that really topples Boris Johnson because I think we're reaching a tipping point there. If it's sooner rather than later, I think that that, that's a bit of a a tough call and I'm, I'm actually not sure that... Uh, Johnson would lose the next election, but maybe I'm just feeling very, very negative right now. Mm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh mini. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> is, that, is that because basically you've got a massive hangover? You're going to bring the show down? Is that what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Not, Not saying anything. <laughs> um, well, at the weekend, Johnson said he was planning on fighting the next two elections and leading the UK in the 2030s. Um, is this just what prime ministers say when they're under pressure? Um, or is he, is he genuinely delusional? Mm, both, probably. I mean, I think it's quite normal for prime ministers to pretend that they're going to carry on in office for a while after something like a no-confidence vote. But you would think they would have some humility about them. I mean, if you, if you compare what Theresa May said after her no-confidence vote, she said that, you know, she at least acknowledged that she'd listened to the concerns of colleagues and would use that to move forward. But he is not humble and he is a big mouth. He will say whatever he wants. And so I don't think he's delusional. I just think that he's um, arrogant and wants to hold on to power for as long as possible. And, you know, he's so bullshit. He never really takes into account how it will uh, piss off the rest of the backbenchers or anyone who who doesn't mm. support him at the moment. And I think that's mm. just part of his character to to push forward and and deal with the consequences later. Um, Jeff, there was talk after 2019 that the Tories were going to exploit a, a post-Brexit realignment with what was going to go more like a, a red Tory agenda with, um, you know, levelling up and doing more for the left behind and so on. But, I mean, are they facing the same problem they're having actually with Brexit itself? 
that actually they've still got a large number of unreconstructed Thatcherites who really couldn't care less uh, about the left behind. And that there just is not the appetite in the party for that kind of, uh, you know, new look Toryism. I think it's very hard maintaining a conservative coalition in most countries now because you have it is so fragmented between social conservatives and liberals working class voters and you know your core middle class who still may want lower taxes more than anything and don't want to pay more for their car we saw this in australia a few weeks ago it was the disintegration of what had been a very successful conservative coalition i think just as we all have forgotten about partygate by the time of the next election the brexit effect has essentially disappeared, I think now. One of the mm. signs of the by-elections was that it didn't last as a lasting realignment mm. of politics, which many people thought it would. And instead, all that holds the Tory coalition together is the extreme bullish self-confidence of Boris Johnson with no real beliefs, uh, which is precisely why he says he'll still be there in the 2030s, because <laughs> that is his brand, to be ultra-confident regardless of everything. I still think, though, you know, everything is to play for in British politics in the next two years. I think it's very hard to predict of course, yes. the next election. But it's to... not looking good right now, it's fair to say. It's... You know, they, they, there was a situation where on the day Keir Starmer was confirmed as leader, which is quite a useful marker, they were 21 points ahead in the aggregate poll. So the poll of all polls, they were 21 points ahead. And now they're a steady eight, nine points behind. In the space of two and a half years, that's catastrophic. It, it, they, they have definitely <laughs> lost a lot of ground. It's incredibly hard for them, given the fiscal and economic environment, to deliver on their promises on levelling up yeah. and that sort of red Tory agenda. But, you know, the next year or two, as the various crises mount as we see the energy crisis leading to a food crisis, probably leading to another refugee crisis, mm -hmm. leading to insecurity, who knows what will happen mm -hmm. in Ukraine. There are many issues which probably will rise up that list of priority issues on which Labour will be weaker than uh, a, a Johnson-led Tory party. So right. it's not open and shut at all. Do, do you think he will lead them to the next election? Is that your... just Probably, yeah. yeah. Because there isn't an alternative... Yeah, yeah. Um, so much, and we, we're onto this when we talk about your book, but we've realized that so much of the discussions that we have on this podcast about what, what the government is up to is about electoral strategy rather than, than policy. Um, and that's not that we have a sort of an anti-policy bias. Do, do the Tories, do you think, have a political project beyond winning elections? At the moment, they don't. In the past, they did. And we may come at this to about my book. There were periods when the main parties in Britain had a 10, 20, 30 year vision and strategy, which may or may not have been right. And they had a lot of people working in party HQ trying to think it through. That has almost completely disappeared from, I'd say, all the major parties mm. now, including the Tories. So they have rhetoric. But very little underneath it. Mm. This is uh, I was called. This is this is my say what you like about Margaret Thatcher point, <laughs> which is just like it, it it's should like, just end this. Say what you like about Margaret Thatcher. But, 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 there, there was an agenda. She knew what she wanted. At least, at least it's an ethos. They say in Big Lebowski. Um, Alex Oliver Dowden resigned after the by elections, claiming somebody must take responsibility for both the results and what he called recent events. Um, do you think that there will be any other? Is he glad to be out of there? Do you think there are any other ministers looking to go? Or was, of course was it just he's inevitable? Of course he's glad to be out of there. Who wouldn't be glad to be out of there? The, the, the relief must be enormous. They must all be exhausted 
more than anything else with just picking up the the day's papers and seeing what other horror has sort of but, broken. But, but Dowden was the most doughty sort of culture yeah. warrior, wasn't he? He kind of embraced it with, with open arms, really. For someone who is a pro-European liberal, he, he sort of went <laughs> he for it. Stumbled out like He really crazy. went for it. I, I think there is something stirring with Ben Wallace and Liz Truss. I think there are, there are factions there. So Wallace has uh, reportedly written a letter demanding a large rise in the defense budget. And he's supported by Liz Truss in this cause and by the military. You know, the head of the army made a very conveniently timed speech. The military which, does love more money for the military. In which he argued, this is our 1937 moment. And Johnson so far is siding with Sunak, who's saying, well, look, you know, um, inflation is affecting everyone. If you give them 20%, then everyone will want 20%. But I, I don't see how long that can hold, because I think Truss and Wallace are looking for reasons to resign and go off in a huff and start their leadership right, bid. Right. And I think so is Sunak in many ways. So trying to keep the, that triangle happy seems to me difficult. Um, there's rumoured that three more Tory MPs are talking about defecting to Labour uh, following Christian Wakeford in mm. January. Do you think one of those or more will materialise? I hope not. I, they're much more useful as sort of Tory backbench rebels than they are you know, crossing the the aisle. But but I, I have to say that all my contacts, both in the cabinet office and in number 10, are saying the primary people fueling this story are number 10 um, because they're trying to sow a sense of paranoia and division in the right. rebel camp and also to push the rest of the Tories together. So I, I wouldn't, I really wouldn't put much... There might be one, but they're kind of exaggerating it. A mini Brexit, as we know, was Johnson's winning card in 2019. Um, but it's not going well, apparently. Uh, <laughs> the latest poll of polls shows that 49 to 38% think it was a bad idea. Another poll says only 16% think that it's going actively well. Um, obviously, the government is now claiming this isn't really Brexit uh, and the Remainers sabotaged it. I mean, politically, is there any capital to get out of Brexit? Now, I mean, considering that, uh, as, as Jeff pointed out, you know, less than three years ago, it, it was being said that this was, you know, the future of, of, of British politics. Is it, be is it almost best that they don't talk about it? No, I mean, I actually think it's, uh, I think it's a good, I don't want to say good strategy, but it's a strategy that they will have to use throughout the next election cycle anyway, because they can't accept failure. They can't take responsibility and say, yeah, this is going badly because of everything that we did in government. But at the current time period we're in now, a lot of people are seeing the issues that they're being affected by, like cost of living crisis, energy crisis, fuel bills, all of that. They're seeing it, they're feeling it, and they're experiencing it, and they're unhappy with the government that's leading them. And what the government needs is some kind of common enemy and something that divides the public again. So I think it's a, a framing strategy for them that does have some capital if they really need to start dividing people again. We'll see how it works for them. I'll be interested to see. My instinct is that it's lost that polarising power. Mm. Um, I, I, I could be wrong, but I, it just doesn't feel like, you know, danger. they're pressing the big red button, yeah. you know, to turn yeah, everyone to leave the remainder. It's time limited, yeah. I'd, yeah. I would agree that it's time limited. I, I don't think that it will 
last forever. But I think that that is something that they have to just keep trying for the moment because it has worked for them successfully and they have no one else to blame for but themselves. <laughs> I think the big danger is that they go to the public with the big scary message. If you elect these people, they might undo bits of Brexit. Mm when a large chunk of the people who voted for Brexit secretly think, thank fuck for that. <laughs> Someone undoing bits of Brexit would be a terrific thing, even if they don't, even if they don't have this big public Damascene conversion. Like rejoining it, rejoin no. is, is a scary message, but yeah. actually but the no kind one's, of idea... Yeah, no one's no saying that. that, not yeah, even yeah. the Liberal Democrats are saying that. So, um, A word here for protester Steve Bray, who's amplifier and sound system was confiscated outside Westminster under new anti-protest laws, um, raising the possibility that perhaps the entire uh, law against noisy protests was designed just to get Steve Bray to be quiet. It does look a little bit like that, doesn't it? Um, and there's been a lot of um, MPs kind of tweeting glee that, you know, that he's been removed and calling his protest violent, which is just ridiculous. It's quite wild to see people on the right equating speech with violence when I'm sure that this was meant to be a woke snowflake trigger warning kind of uh, <laughs> conflation. I mean, if you want to know about cancel culture and take right. someone's platform away, here it is, quite literally. Uncancel Steve Bray. <laughs> Jeff, do you think strikes are going to be, become the, the sort of the big headache um, for the Tories this year? Because, actually, of course, when you think back to um, the, with Wilson and Callaghan in the 70s, because they were a huge problem for Heath and the reason why he lost um, the, the 74 election, do, does the Tories have any strategy for this? Because it seems like there's a lot more coming down the pipe. I think there's definitely a lot more coming down the pipe as everyone's pay is cut. Any group of workers with a bit of muscle will try and reduce their cut. Mm. And that will be doctors or barristers or train drivers or probably NHS workers will all use uh, industrial action. Um, the Tories definitely don't have a strategy in the sense that Margaret Thatcher, who you praised earlier, you know, worked, hey, hey, hey. worked incredibly hard <laughs> on her strategy for when she would face the NUM mm. and on what terms. Right. You see nothing comparable to that now. But I think the Tories, who are now in such a tactical rather than strategic mode, will think all of those strikes are pretty uncomfortable for Keir Starmer and his colleagues. You know, what do they say on more and more mounting strikes causing more and more disruption? some of which will have public sympathy, but many of which won't. I think they will play it purely as a sort of dividing line issue in political tactical terms rather than in a sort of governmental strategic right. way. Mm. And finally, Ukraine seems to be the only issue on which Johnson is doing well. Vladimir Zelensky has given him lots of, lots of praise, you know, and I do think, you know, credit where it's due or whatever. Do you think that Johnson is... Manipulating that and seizing opportunities to be the big man on that stage because it's it's sort of the only thing that's. You mean he only well. calls Zelensky when he's had a crisis? I'm just saying. It's <laughs> a what, a horror, what a terrible thing to it's suggest. It's a possibility. Some, <laughs> he's a politician, my some God. Some skeptics yeah. and haters are suggesting. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, some people do the right thing, not necessarily for the right reasons. <laughs> um, a bit of that may be happening. I've just come back from Germany where, you know, Olaf Scholz has really struggled to do the right thing on mm -hmm. Ukraine and a lot of his advisors having years of commitment to alliance with Russia and turning a blind eye and getting their gas and so on. So 
I, I quite welcome a rare moment to feel a little bit proud of what Britain is doing right. on this war and seeing it in fairly straightforward terms. How long that will last once we have mass food shortages globally and a, what may be a very protracted war is hard to say. But for now, let's give the guy a bit of credit. It's a very rare moment of credit for us, Johnson, but I, I endorse it. <laughs> Now it's time for a question from our Patreon backers in the beloved national institution known as But Your Emails. This week, Harish Hirani asks, this newfound love-in for Mick Lynch over the past week by those to the left of the centre. What are the panel's views on his fight for a fairer deal for the common man on one hand and the RMT union stance on Brexit on the other? Are you looking at me? Um... Well, you're on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, and then... <laughs> Okay, an antipathy to the EU is a perfectly respectable and intellectually consistent position historically of the Benite um, school. It is also a completely idiotic thing to believe in 2016. So it's fine in 1971 to have your suspicions that this mercantile project might chain us to a sort of capitalist model and we don't know how it's... But 40 years later, having experienced that in practice, the European Union has evolved into a much more socio-political project and that its function has almost without fail been to to anchor the UK towards the centre from right-wing excesses, it's stupid to still believe that. And to look at the people fronting the Leave Vote project, you know, the worst loons of the right wing, the biggest xenophobes, and to think that handing them power will somehow bring a socialist utopia. I mean, I, I just don't understand that thinking. No, I mean, I think, I mean, I basically believe that you, you sort of admire, you could admire people for some qualities, uh, but it doesn't mean you have to buy the whole package. And I always thought Lexit was just one of the most idiotic political ideas. Of, <laughs> but it's a, but it's a historical times. It's backward. It's from that tradition yeah. that, that Corbyn came from. Although obviously he didn't actually, you know, he didn't, you know, push, push leave. But, you know, seven that out was, of ten. That was seven out of ten. But that's where he came from. And so I, I expect, I suppose my opinion is that I quite like the, 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 where Sharon Graham is, is taking Unite, which is going less, um, less focus on Labour Party politics in the Len McCluskey mode and trying to be the kind of power mm. broker there, and more on getting the best deal for your members, yeah. which is the job of a union leader. And so Mick Lynch is doing very well for his members. He's a fantastic uh, you know, media performer. Yeah. Um, the fact that I think he was like insanely wrong on Brexit at this point is neither here nor there. No, and he's very right on what he's talking about now. Minnie? Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I mean, a lot of the unions were quite bad on on Brexit and a lot of them were bad on Brexit because they'd fundamentally misunderstood the impact that migration had on on British workers. And, you know, that was very frustrating at the time and it's still frustrating now. But I, I think I agree with what Dorian just said. You know, ultimately, he can be wrong on one thing and completely right on another thing. And at this moment in time, it's more important to focus on that than to focus on something that happened six years ago. And also, just on a personal note, it is so satisfying <laughs> to watch him on TV call call politicians liars to their face. Oh, it's just amazing media <laughs> performer. So, Jeff, what do you make of Mick Mania? 
<laughs> so I agree. A lot of his views and his circles are, are, are in a time warp in relation to Europe or NATO or Russia or Venezuela. But as, as Minnie just said, there is something refreshing about a public figure who's comfortable in his own skin, mm. <laughs> which mm. is surprisingly rare amongst Labour politicians who often look so nervous that they're going to say <laughs> something wrong uh, and be attacked. And he is talking about pay. And there has been a massive shift against workers' pay relative to capital in the last 10 or 20 years. And it's something which should be talked about. So uh, it, it, it is refreshing. I wouldn't like him to be Prime Minister of the UK <laughs> in a month's time. But he's got a narrow role which he's doing very effectively right now. Yeah, I think what people really want is just some skills in <laughs> skills in the Labour Party, don't they? They just want someone to be good on TV. <laughs> <laughs> someone to look like they want to be there would, would be a good start. It is quite funny though when you think about it because so many signs, the kind of people who are very much, I suppose, in Mick Lynch's camp are exactly the kind of people that sort of sneer at being good on TV. Mm. Yeah. They go, it's about policies and principles and values. And then someone comes along who's really good on TV and they're just like, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like it does, it does and matter. And good on TikTok as well. Hang on, there we yeah. go. <laughs> Our guest, Jeff Mulgan, has just published a new book called Another World is Possible, How to Reignite Social and Political Imagination. We've noticed that political parties don't give us many ideas to discuss on the podcast. So we're going to take the opportunity to think bigger and ask where visions of the future might come from. Um, Jeff, what work did this book emerge from? What led you to write it? it? It really initially emerged from a lot of conversations with people involved in the Friday school strikes. And part of me was incredibly impressed by their energy, their commitment, how much they got on top of the science of climate change. But I was also struck by their incredible pessimism. And it prompted me to talk to lots of people, leaders, activists of all kinds, business people, NGOs. And I found a similar pattern. They all found it quite easy to picture ecological disaster 50, 60 years into the future. And technological futures are all around us, AI, robots, genomics, and so on. But you ask them, what could a welfare state look like in 2050? Mm. How might democracy run? How might our cities be or our health service? And even highly educated people struggled to answer that in any detail. And this convinced me that we actually have a big problem, a crisis, really, of our social and political imagination. And I sort of analysed, you know, why has this happened? And uh, <laughs> the story is partly about political parties hollowing out. It's partly about universities, and I'm in one, giving up that kind of work. But its net effect is that we don't have a positive picture of how, within a generation or two, our society could be better. And this fuels a deep pessimism. If you look at surveys... Uh, large majorities in most countries, including this, expect their children to be worse off than them. The time horizons of politics have shrunk to days or weeks. You never get the mainstream newspapers, the mainstream media never talk about the long-term future. They've given up. They're not interested in that stuff. And so we have this weird kind of yeah, shrinking of horizons, shrinking of hope in the future, which I think then feeds a pervasive fatalism where people think, well, maybe nothing can be done. Maybe we are all doomed. Well, because I remember um, that sort of post-1989 moment where I felt tremendously uh, optimistic. So when did this when did this change? I mean, is it something that goes back to the the 2008 crisis? Is it to do more to do with kind of the the, the growing awareness of the climate emergency? Like when, when did it sort of tip to people actually thinking that things are just going to get worse? So there are two things which I point to as 
perhaps turning points. One is, I think, the financial crisis. We haven't basically recovered from it ever since then. Large proportions of the population in North America, in the UK, and Europe have seen stagnant or declining real incomes. There's also an extraordinary bit of research done analyzing every book published in the last 150 years and analyzing the sentiment in those books, which shows it doesn't change much till about the year 2000. It starts going weird, what they call cognitive distortions, catastrophism. There's a whole series of these almost delusions start becoming part of the literature, part of the media and dominating our minds. And then, of course, there is the climate crisis. But I'm convinced we've overshot. We've become unrealistic in our pessimism and Mm. fatalism. I have actually much more confidence that with the right will, with the right uh, efforts, we can fix many of our problems, including uh, climate change, including reinventing welfare, including, you know, building a 21st century democracy. But if we convince ourselves it's not possible, then it definitely won't happen. Well, um I've been re-watching a, a, an Adam Curtis documentary and it kind of reminded me that his sort of thesis is that the 20th century discredited these these sort of radical utopian schemes that were being talked about, written about in the abstract, I think, in the 19th century and early 20th century um, and made us scared of big ideas. And obviously, some of these schemes led to totalitarianism. We've also seen sort of neoliberalism, which in its, its own way has this sort of utopian quality to it. It's just like everything will be fine uh, with, the, with the unhampered market. You know, and that, as that has kind of lost steam. And even the, the sort of tech utopian promises of not so long ago that we were all going to be liberated by social media and the free exchange of information. So is, is, is part of the reason this kind of history of broken, you know, broken promises or things that were meant to be wonderful that just that went very bad? So, I mean, Adam Curtis is a brilliantly, you know, persuasive um, filmmaker, but in a sense, to me, he's part of the problem that often the cleverest people in our culture, our intellectuals, moved away from trying to design a better future towards critique and commentary. You don't get criticised, you can't be proven wrong, you know, uh, and, and you see this right across universities and magazines and so on, the shift of the intelligentsia into that kind of critique. And the internet is a perfect example. As you say, there was sort of daft utopianism 20 or 30 years ago about how the internet was going to automatically create equality and democracy. Then there was this massive change in our lifestyles as the internet became part of everything, but almost no serious work on how to how to shift this amazingly powerful technology to avoid misinformation, corrosion of mm. democracy, mm. destruction of childhood. There weren't the people working on that. And I really fear this will happen again with artificial intelligence and quantum computing and so on. This missing space of design. And one of the things I point out in the book is actually lots of things have gone quite well. The idea that nothing worked in the 20th century is insane. You know, we have the lowest ever child mortality, the highest prosperity. Uh, We have lots of examples of success on climate change. I, 20 years ago, worked on the first climate change strategy. You know, very few people, even in this country, know how much electricity comes from renewables now. Do you know what the percentage is, by any chance? Not off the top of my head. I I know it's a lot higher. 
higher it's a lot than higher. I thought. <laughs> exactly. I, thought I, think, yeah. I mean, it's between 40 and 50%, which right. when it was 2 or 3% when we did that work. Yeah. Now, so these have been these massive changes, quite slow, quite steady. And it's really important that we learn from them that actually even quite complicated, difficult problems are soluble rather than throwing up our hands and becoming fatalists that just because Marxist utopias often went a bit awry, mm. that therefore nothing can be done. And therefore all we should do is, yeah... <laughs> Uh, complain and moan. Uh, we don't complain or moan on this podcast. We've never, <laughs> never, never. Um, so climate being the obvious one, what are the other kind of really big challenges, not just in the UK, but probably, you know, across certain West, certainly Western democracies um, that aren't being sufficiently addressed at the moment? What are the things that you, that, that you, that you worry about where you're looking for more action? Well, I mean, there are so many. All the different dimensions of inequality, fairly obviously, one thing which I've written about is the extraordinary fact that in the pandemic, nearly half the lowest paid workers were deemed essential <laughs> and a far smaller proportion of the highest paid workers were deemed essential. So we've got a completely messed up labour market, which mm. has to be fixed. We're going through an extraordinary ageing process, which mm. challenges every society on earth and will need new ways of organising care and pensions and cities and so on. One which I'm very interested in, mental health, and look at what could be done by a city, by a government, to help 30 40% of the population not suffer from anxiety, depression, and loneliness. Mm -hmm. And one crucial, I think, difference perhaps from the 20th century utopias and so on, and I argue this in the book, is now we need the visions, the directions, the ideas, but we get to them experimentally. We try things out. We don't do what Lenin did or Pol Pot and you experiment on your whole country at once. And it's a dramatically different approach to change. And it involves people being the agents of their own change, the co-creators of it, rather than just passive observers. Mm. I mean, there's always a, there is a bias in politics towards sort of short-termism and, and electoral strategy. Um, it's not like everybody, you know, in the past was... Uh, you know, was, was, was thinking long-term all the time. Do you think it's especially bad now? And, and, and if so, why? I think it's different in different countries. I work a lot in Finland, for example, which has a wonderful coalition government, mainly run by women in their early 30s, and very confident to talk about welfare in 2040 or how to get to a net zero economy. Partly because it, it, it's deeply embedded in the political culture that you should talk long term. They're a slightly paranoid country sitting next to Russia. Right. They've been through hard times. All across Scandinavia now, there are centre-left governments, all of which have this, yeah, this culture of, I guess, long-termism, responsibility, taking issues like inequality seriously. And by comparison, I do think our British culture is quite pathological in its extreme short-termism, the lack of interest of our media and our main parties in any discussion which goes more than a year or two ahead or beyond the next election. I, I was really taken by the section of your book where you talk about the relationship between this political imagination, what needs to happen, and the arts and humanities and people coming from those spaces into politics. Do, do you think that the progressive side of politics should take a much more active, stern defense of humanities courses, of uh, you know arts funding? Of, because it seems to me that it is in, inextricably linked to good solutions, to thinking outside the box, to finding imaginative ways of getting out of tight spots. So, I mean, in the book, I look at lots of the past currents of imagination from utopias to model towns to movements to great exhibitions. 
And as you say, it's remarkable in the past, the big role played by the arts in its widest sense, by fiction or science mm. fiction, mm. Mm. Uh, or by, uh, by architects reimagining how a city could be. And artists often, I, I, what I argue is they don't actually give you your future utopia, but they help you think in lateral ways. And then hopefully you come back with your plans and your policies. And one of the things I argue is every every city should have maybe museums of the future, not just of the past, where they're curating these possibilities 20 or 30 years out so people can touch it and feel it and taste it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wales just two weeks ago launched a social science park in Cardiff, which links the university, the government, the city, charities and so on to work on exactly these kind of long-term issues together. And they have a Future Generations Commissioner in Wales and a Future Generations Act. There's a seriousness of purpose Mm. about the long term, which you don't really see in Mm. England. And that's one of the, as I was saying earlier, many things we probably need to learn from the smaller countries, which have a culture which feels, you know, 10 or 20 years ahead of the London Westminster Whitehall culture now. You're right about the need for for a radical flank combined with a pragmatic centre. I'm not sure there's the exact words you use, but um, do you think in his flight from from Corbynism that Starmer has sort of neutered, given up on the radical flank and that therefore he's just sort of shut off some of these more bold ideas? You know, I think Labour under Starmer, perhaps for understandable reasons, becomes so nervous of ideas that they've locked themselves into such a narrow incrementalism is not inspiring anyone. And if you look at all the great political election victories of the past, they always had, in some ways, fairly pragmatic leaders at the core who were smart enough not to align themselves to crazy policies. But they also encouraged the hinterland of creativity Mm. and exploration. And through that, and this was as true of Tony Blair or David Cameron as Margaret Thatcher, they got, they they projected an image that they were at ease, they were at home in the future. Mm. At the moment, I don't think the Labour leadership looks at home in any desirable future. They never talk about it. I don't know what they think about it. And yet, it's just, it's, it's a crucial space for a centre-left government to do. And one of the nice things in Germany at the moment is seeing the SPDs and the Greens actually becoming quite comfortable talking about pretty radical long-term stuff in way and, and uh, Olaf Schultz is definitely not a charismatic ideas guy but he does understand that you will only win elections you'll only make the weather politically if you're generating that ferment of ideas around you yeah. well I mean, if you think about this after seeing the sort of Blair and Brown documentary that came out a few months ago and doing a bit more going back and doing a bit more reading about that period and, and Tony Blair used the word radical a lot in the 90s, and he still, he still does now. Do you think that's sort of part of it, that his project that is forgotten, and people can argue about whether what he was doing was radical enough, but, you know, that it's remembered as sort of only cautious and managerial and win elections at any cost, and the sort of the vision thing aspect has just been forgotten, or is certainly not being emulated. Yeah, well, one of my criticisms of that, series, the TV program on Blair and Brown, is it said nothing about what they'd achieved. I think if you look back in history, you know, Blair presided over an extraordinary constitutional change, including devolution to Scotland and Wales and so on, massive effects on poverty, 
child poverty, social exclusion, and so on. And things like what I just mentioned on climate change were way ahead of their time in you know, building in ecological policies to what government did. And there's so many other examples of that kind. Because of Iraq, all of that sort of got forgotten. Mm. And there isn't really a... Na- and because subsequent Labour leaders didn't want to talk about any of that, it sort of got forgotten. But it's really important to remember that he had a, obviously a very smart positioning in relation to centrist voters and the Tory press and so on. But he used that to buy space to do, I think, some pretty serious changes to the underlying structures of British society and economy. But given the size of his mandate, the the relative prosperity of that period, are the things that you look back on and think uh, maybe this partly being derailed by Iraq or by, you know, tensions with Brown or whatever the reasons, but where you think there were actually some of these long-term problems that still aren't being addressed, where there were wasted opportunities, whether that be on you know, housing or caring for the elderly or things that you think there was the potential to have done more. Oh, yeah. I ran the strategy unit (laughs) for a lot of that. We worked on some of those and some of them got through and many of them were deemed too politically difficult. So I think that we could have fixed the care system uh, then. That has still been kicked into the long grass. Uh, Local government, the reinvention of local government with a proper tax base was, again, a massive missed opportunity. And of course, the biggest one of all, perhaps, was recognising the instability of the deregulated finance sector Mm. and, you know, getting a grip on that ahead of the financial crash of 2007. Now, all of that's easy to say in retrospect. As I say, on balance, I think it was a hugely productive, useful government, which now stands in such contrast Mm. to all the governments we've had (laughs) since. And I think we do need to tell the story of its successes, but also recognise its mandate was bigger than what it asked for. And it didn't quite use that political capital to solve some of the deep underlying structural issues of the country. Because the roadblock a lot of the time to these ideas is that it's not politically, you know, doable. We, we, We can't make this work. This is too tricky. Do you, and I mean, I'm sure in some cases that is true. There are some policies which are very hard to sell. But do you think that that's true less often than people say, that actually there is more appetite in the public for sort of for bold reforms and visions of the future than politicians seem to think? But I mean, the, the heart of political method is to try and make the impossible possible. And often that is difficult. And I've worked in many countries with politicians, both successfully and unsuccessfully. I mean, I think a good example was on pensions, where Blair and Brown recognised the need for pretty major pensions overhaul, but they did it in quite slow stages, tried to make it quite inclusive, including the other parties, so it wouldn't unravel when there was a change of government. Australia is about to do, I hope, a fairly radical set of policies on climate change. I was involved in their failed one 10 years ago when they you know, tried to introduce the world's first carbon tax, but hadn't bought in you know, a wide enough coalition. Maybe you never could buy in Rupert Murdoch, who was the main enemy, mm. but in order to, to, to fix it. So if you're trying to do really deep change... You have to use a lot of political smarts and you usually have to co-opt some of the opposition, bring in you know, m- m- many stakeholders to have a buy-in, first of all, to the diagnosis and then to your actions, rather than just relying on you know, a parliamentary majority to drive things through. But that is, that is what political skill is all about. And you use Milton Friedman's famous quote about how a crisis favours whatever ideas are lying around. And I mean, the case of neoliberals in the 70s, where they'd been developing these ideas since, you know, the 1940s, and they'd been, you know, 
real kind of exiles and underdogs, and then they seize their moment. At the moment, do you feel that there are people out there, you know, intellectuals that have these ideas sort of ready to go, but they're not getting enough of a hearing? I'm wondering where, if the thinking is not in the leadership of the parties at the moment, where is it? I think there's a missing middle. So there's the the leaders who sometimes don't want the ideas. There's then a whole fertile, flourishing world of everyday sort of innovation, experiment on the ground. But at the middle level, policy ideas are surprisingly rare. Mm. If you are, you know, a mayor of a city who says, right, I really want to, you know, radically cut carbon emissions or improve the mental health of my population, there isn't a kind of menu of ideas you can work on. That work hasn't been done. And part of the reason is what I said earlier, that often the cleverest people are in a safe space of commentary and critique. They're not doing that work because it's quite difficult. The universities have largely given up that kind of work for all sorts of quite, quite complicated reasons. And I think we have a deficit of options, of good options. And one of the things I'm really trying to use this book for is to grow the menu of options. They don't all have to be perfect. Uh, and I work in various centers in or Finland and Germany and elsewhere to try and create new institutions who's, who really focus on ensuring we do have the ideas ready for that moment of crisis when suddenly what was impossible becomes not just possible but necessary. And do you think, because it seems that we've been in crisis for, for quite a long time now, you know, there's a frustration, I think, that we all feel of just like, well, where are these ideas and what will it, what will it take? I mean, do you feel, because if you're talking about a missing middle, that seems like a very long term problem. You know, how, how soon do you feel that we can get to a place where these sort of ideas are, are circulating more widely and might even be picked up by you know, prime ministers. In a sense, the problem is we never really dealt with the financial crisis and dealt with some of the structural problems of capitalism. Mm. Ten years ago, I wrote a book on after capitalism, thinking that was the moment when <laughs> there would be an appetite for really reforming it. And there should have been. And there should have been. And that was a missed opportunity. There was a sort of lazy rhetorical leftism, which didn't do the hard work of really thinking through what needs to be done on company law or taxation or pay arrangements or skills, all these 101 different things which make a modern economy work. You don't have to change them all at once in a kind of Leninist revolution, but you do have to you know, be encouraging them, experimenting them uh, and growing the alternatives. And we've, we've wasted 15 years, I think, since the financial crisis in that respect. I'm very pessimistic about the next year or two. That could lead to a resurgence of the populist right quite easily, but it could also create new opportunities for radicalism, particularly in the big cities. All across certainly the Western world, the big cities are run from the center left. There's an appetite for doing very different things now. And sometimes that will manifest itself as well in national politics. And one little example, which was in the news yesterday, was Wales introducing a basic income pilot for care leavers. Uh, all across the world, there's lots of little experiments on universal basic mm. income. I'm a bit sceptical of their pure form, but it's exactly the right question to be asking. What's a welfare state like for an, a precarious economy where people you know, can't be confident they'll be earning enough from their Uber job uh, next month or they're getting into debt because of their energy bills? And we should be celebrating those real practical, sometimes quite small experiments that are doing it for you know, 500 care leavers, but which point to a much bigger story about how our society could be changed. 
And that's the show. Thank you to Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Alex. Thank you. And our guest, Jeff Mulgan. Thank you. Our theme tune is Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. You'll hear it in a moment, along with a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Peter Cubbon, David Swan, Audrey, Chris Carini, Joseph Rushton, Usman Zafar, Scaredy Cat, and Stephen Kavanagh. Big shout from me to Craig Gardner, Dave, Catherine Lothian, Rosie Callahan, Ian, Mark Mockett, Kate Bogazzi, and John Runnicles. And thanks for me to Gavin Atkin, Tim Fletcher, Ramshackle78, Edmund Dunbar, Alex Neat, Katharina Dankert, Mark Douglas Whitmore, and Richard House. See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Minnie Rahman. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. The producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovic. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer, Jacob Jarvis. And Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God, What Now extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. Last week, Vienna was named the world's most livable city in an annual report from The Economist, snatching back the top spot from Auckland, New Zealand, which is appalling. <laughs> um, no, it's also very good. Vienna was praised for its unusually good infrastructure, excellent healthcare and culture, and entertainment options. London was the world's 33rd most livable city in this year's rankings, with Manchester at 28, although both have risen up from the 50s over the past year due to lifting of lockdown restrictions. So, what do our panellists think make a good city, and which cities around the world might they want to live in? Uh, Minnie, what do, you, what do you think, never mind The Economist, uh, what do you think <laughs> makes a livable city? Um, I think affordability, so like actually being able to afford housing and to have a nice time there, which counts out London. <laughs> and um, I think transport and then definitely just like a multitude of things to do. I think I'm just saying this, obviously I'm in my eat, pray, love phase of life. So I'm going to a lot of cities at the moment. And actually my favorite city so far has been Bangkok. I just thought it was absolutely amazing. And I think the main reason that I thought it was amazing was it because it was just so multicultural and vast like you could literally... and that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then sign up to back us on patreon for as little as two pounds a month you'll also get our weekly minicast oh god what else every monday morning exclusive to backers your support keeps us going thanks for listening and we'll see you next week <laughs>